0: The rest of us go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 6. Again, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a chair near you. Definitely grab one so you can follow along. Matthew. Matthew's in the New Testament towards the end of your Bible there. Malachi, Matthew, Mark. Matthew chapter 6. We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Matthew. Just one verse at a time. Whenever the next verse is, take them as they come. We'll be in uh, the section in ch- verses 25 through 34 this evening. Matthew chapter 6. Well, I suppose it's been one of those weeks. Globally, there have been things like slaughters and synagogues. Nationally, no small uproar with Things like immigration, many other things locally, and no small explosions. Things like propane stations blowing up. Thankfully, no one killed, no life lost there. We praise God for that. And perhaps personally, for some of us, if not all of us, just the normal struggles that uh, we all have, sometimes smaller, sometimes greater, nothing out of the ordinary, Any one of those things alone is enough to crank up the worry, to get us anxious. Worry, fear. We are in part three of our study in Matthew 6 on Christ's teaching about the issue of worry and anxiety. Worry, we could define it this way. Mental distress Or agitation resulting from concern, usually for something impending or anticipated, whether real or imagined. It's something we all face. Difficult struggle, whether real or imagined. And the statistics, as as we've been seeing on worry and anxiety, they're staggering. I found some uh, updated numbers from the past few weeks on this issue. Anxiety disorders, authorities say, are the most common mental illness in the U.S., affecting about one of every five adults, and that's just those who get diagnosed. Furthermore, anxiety disorders cost the United States more than $42 billion a year, almost one-third of the country's total mental health bill. More than $22.8 billion of those costs are associated with the repeated use of health services along these lines. People with anxiety disorder, authorities say, are three to five times more likely to go to the doctor and six times more likely to be hospitalized for psychiatric disorders. Worry. As we've been studying, God's Word has the answers to this. It is a very real issue. Real answers God's Word has. Answers full of grace and truth, full of power and transforming power through grace and the person and work of Christ. Because as Christ has been teaching, He not only assumes that trusting in Him and His Word is sufficient to address anxiety, but He's teaching us that the solution to anxiety isn't so much about changing our circumstances as it is changing our trust, who we trust in. Who we hope in. It's obvious by some of those statistics that wealth does not wipe away worry. perhaps quite the contrary. If nothing else, the evidence of our unprecedentedly affluent society evidences I mean things like spending 40 billion in a year to treat anxiety shows that affluence does not abolish anxiety. Perhaps it accelerates it. Having the right amount of stuff doesn't eradicate worry. Trusting God does. And we're seeing this in our study. That really Christ, He cripples worry by turning our eyes to a great God. To a sovereign God. To a trustworthy, all-knowing Father God. He He doesn't promise that our circumstances will get easy, but He does promise that our worry can be put to death. A loving God. And so a study in worry is really a study about God, the true God. The worry-free life is the product of growing in a true, accurate, saving knowledge of God. Worry-free living is not something we pursue, by the way. It is the byproduct instead of pursuing God and growing in our knowledge of Him. Ultimately, worry-free living is about God. Knowing the truth about the true God, seeking the true God, actively thinking on God. So with that, let's dive into the text here. Follow along as I read. I'm going to read the whole section as we've been doing each week, verse 25 to 34, just to get a a big view here. Follow along as I read Matthew 6, verse 25. Jesus says, for this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor for your body as to what you'll put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil or spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothe himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is stoned in the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry than saying, what do we eat? What do we drink? What do we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the king, his kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of itself. So, a little context here in case you haven't been with us Matthew 5 through 7 is one sermon that Jesus preaches called the Sermon on the Mount. He's probably preaching it pretty regularly in the first century to a lot of these fishing villages around the Sea of Galilee. And this particular section in verse 25 to 34 is again addressing the very common issue whether 1st century, century Palestine, 21st century United States, worry. The issue here is less about changing our circumstances and about trusting God. And Jesus says, do not be worried about life. And this is tried and tested advice because Jesus is a tried and tested Savior, and the Bible is a tried and tested book for a struggling human race. The, the central issue here, upon which Jesus and into which Jesus would have us just throw anchor, is that their Father, verse 33, He knows. He knows. We... And so, again, it's an appeal to think about different, think about God, to walk through the, the art gallery of God and look at all these portraits, as it were, of God from different angles. And so then, we cannot flee from worry by trying to flee from worry. No, we flee worry by fleeing to God, to the God and our Father. And so with that, the, the big picture uh, idea of the message is this. I'll put it up here. It's also in your bulletins. Just the bird's eye view of our study. Probably... We'll go to five parts, I imagine, but the big picture idea is this. In light of how loving and competent, aware and sovereign our Father God is, whose children we become through Christ, through faith in Christ, we can give ourselves fully to the joy of God's priorities and thereby live worry-free. And thereby live worry-free. That's sort of the view of the forest here. Now, we've been seeing there are three sort of foundational truths that, that are woven into this passage, which Jesus assumes and which really hold up all the advice and all the, this transforming power and worry. There are these very quickly. I'll put them up here. Jesus is assuming these things that are essential to our study first, that God is a faithful father to all who trust Christ. This is essential. This is essential for all of these principles, that he is a faithful father. First, you must trust Christ. Christ is the door into which we enter the family of God. And then number two, God is the all-perfect father to his children, furthermore. You see that sort of woven through these verses in the number three, as their father God knows and gives his children everything we need. He will never be known as a deadbeat dad. And so with that, our outline, we'll put it up here. Our outline we're seeing through this passage is, Is this, at principles which lay our worry to rest. If you're taking notes, we're looking at principles which lay our worry to rest. How many? Well, we'll see. By the time all is said and done, hard to say. But we're taking a detailed look at each of these principles or reasons which Jesus gives, why God's people need not worry, and how we can have a funeral for worry and lay it to rest. You and I, of course, we have good reasons to worry in our life. We can't just play a camel here, an ostrich, I should say, and just bury our head and try to ignore the things of life. No, we have reasons to worry, but Jesus gives many more reasons not to worry. Far more reasons not to worry. And so number one is this, by way of review, very briefly, we saw, and you can get these messages online, we saw very briefly that, that the history principle, first of all, The history principle, namely, we can be rid of worry by recalling the historical context into which Jesus speaks. Verse 25, Jesus said, do not be worried. That word in the Greek there for worried carries the idea of to to speculate, to brood over something. Uh, To be anxiously expectant is what that word means in the original there. It was used in ancient times to speak of things which would disturb sleep. And from which people sought refuge. And so we recall the first century audience here is critical because these people next to the Sea of Galilee, as we think of their circumstances, it'll diminish our worry. This was mostly a poverty stricken culture. uh, Who? Who? uh, Whose taxes were very high, whose economy was unstable. They were not wondering, these people in the first century were not wondering, well, what kind of health options uh, might I choose? Uh, but they were wondering if they could live every day. They were not thinking about a Thanksgiving hol- holiday buffet. Uh, they were not thinking uh, of gorging on piles of food and then thinking, okay, I better time my workout around that. I better time my workout to maximize my metabolism efficiency To see if I work out Wednesday night. And then if I work out Thursday morning, if the gym's open, and then I can just gorge myself Thursday, and then Friday hit the gym, and I'll just pound extra turkey before then, nah, I won't gain a pound. Now this, this original audience, we're not wondering what they might eat, but if they would eat. Even so, Jesus lived among them and understood the poverty. He still commands them and assumes that his advice to, to stop worrying is sufficient, and it is. And so if it was enough for them, To kill their worry, certainly it would be for our circumstances, right? In our context. The history principle. Now, a few few points of clarity on this passage. What Christ is not saying, as we've seen. First, he's not saying you don't need to work. Of course, that's foolishness. He's not saying we'll have everything we ever want, either. He's not making a correlation also. He's not making a correlation between faith and wealth. In other words, if you just have, like, the more faith you have, uh, the more you'll have in your bank account. He's not saying that. And he's not advocating the solution to worry being inaction, indifference, or irresponsibility, or ignorance. He's not advocating uh, those solutions. That inaction, I sit around and just wait for it to fall out of the sky. He's not saying that. No, he's saying work is the means through which God provides. And so on. Number one. Number two, we saw in in verse 25, the morality principle. We put our worry to death by the morality principle. Namely, we can be rid of worry since worry is sin against God and God cleanses us from sin. How is it sin against God? Because God commands us not to worry. A parallel passage, again, would be Philippians 4, 6, where God says, be anxious for nothing. And so that means to to worry is sin against God. And God doesn't expose our sin to identify it only, but to identify it and purify it to help us. Number two. Number three, we saw the quantity principle. Verse 25, is not life more than food? Meaning, yes, it's far more. But when we worry so much about the bills and the kids and so on, We're in effect saying that life is just all life is about is just my health and the bills. And Jesus says, man, your life is so much more than that. It's about trusting God, loving God, knowing God, peace with God, the word of God, learning about God. The quantity principle, life is more than physical stuff. Third, fourth, we saw also the competency principle, the competency principle. Jesus turns to verse 26. Look there with me. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, gather, reap, whatever, but your father feeds them. The the competency principle. In other words, Jesus is saying, if your God is competent to feed something like a little bird, and he does, don't you think he's competent to take care of things like your bills and, and, and things that you need and a roof and cupboards being filled? He's competent. So it's an argument from the lesser to the greater, right? The competency principle. Number five, we saw the costly principle. The costly principle. Didn't quite get it all up there, but the costly principle is this. God provides for things which are much much less valuable to him than people. Where is that found? Look at the end of verse 26 again. He says, are you not worth much more than they? You're worth far more than the birds. So the costly principle, meaning value. You're way more valuable than the birds, Jesus says. And your, God, and your God feeds the birds. So since you are more valuable than the birds, man, you don't have to worry. You're more valuable than they are to God. He's going to take care of you. He'll provide for you. Well, all that by way of review, and then we left off here. Number six, new material is this. The Futility principle. We, we have a funeral for our worry with the futility principle. The futility principle. Worry is futile because it accomplishes nothing. It accomplishes nothing. Worry is futile because it accomplishes nothing. Look at verse 27. So many reasons. Look what Jesus says here. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life the Greek reads literally, who of you, by worrying, is able to put one cubit on his stature? A cubit was a measurement of 18 inches in ancient time. So literally, who of you is able to, you know, go from you know, six foot to seven foot six? And it was a saying in the ancient times, not of, of height, but of life. He's saying, tell me this. How is your worry helping you live longer? How's that going for you? It's a brilliant and a simple point, a sort of humorous picture Jesus paints to capture the futility of worry, right? Now, in this point, we're going to have two subpoints, because it's such a rich point. There will be two subpoints, number number six there. First, we'll see that worry is futile in light of our human responsibility. And then second, we'll see that you worry is futile uh, in light of our God's sovereignty our God's sovereignty, first in light of our human responsibility. Worry is futile in light of our human responsibility. In other words, worry doesn't help us fulfill the things that God has asked us and commanded us to do. Jesus, Jesus in effect, says this. Look, verse 27. I know that worry is, is there. Life's a battle. But how effective of a weapon is worry for you in accomplishing those things that God wants you to accomplish? And again, recall the first century context. This is, I mean, they are day-to-day living, survival. I mean, what's a vacation? What's time off? What does that mean? They don't even have a category for that in this day. So Jesus would be saying, look, as you face the very real struggle to survive, how helpful is worry to help, help you embrace the battle? How many months and years did you tack on to your life for, say, every 30 minutes of worry, Jesus would say? Worry is always an exercise in futility. Uh, John MacArthur has said this, and D.A. Carson. MacArthur has said this, you can worry yourself to death but not to life. D.A. Carson has said, worry is more likely to shorten life than prolong it. And ultimately, such matters are in God's hands. So we could ask ourselves, in terms of human responsibility... How many bills were paid through our worry? Ask yourself that. I know the kids are interesting. (laughs) The Word of God might be a little bit more. But how how many bills were paid through our worry? How, how How much better did we become at our job through worry? In what ways has worry strengthened you in suffering, Jesus might ask? We could go on and ask ourselves, how many of our marital struggles were solved through worry? How many of our struggles with our kids were effectively addressed through worry? How did worry help our kids come to know Christ better, we could ask. How did our anxiety help us improve in blessing others around us? It doesn't. It's futile. How many of our conflicts were resolved through worry? How did worry help us address that hard situation in our job? How did worry help us more effectively reach not yet believers around us and become a blessed uh, person to be around? How did anxiety help us to grow and diligently trust in Christ? How did worry further me along in an industrious life for God? The point here is it's futile. Worry is futile. 30 minutes of worrying, we've done nothing. 30 minutes of some Bible reading, praying, we've accomplished much, haven't we? 30 minutes given to anxiousness, we've benefited no one. 30 minutes given to our our family and serving someone, a job, whatever, we've benefited many. And more importantly, honored the Lord. One writer says that a day of worry is more exhausting than a week of work. And we might add to that, a day of worry is far less productive. Worry in our human responsibility, it is futile, isn't it? Futile. It's not a means to be faithful to the things God has asked us to do. Jesus' underlying thought here is as God's people, we should fill our time with what God wants us to do, our responsibilities. Worry does neither, it's futile. First but second subpoint under here. Second, worry is futile in God's sovereignty. Worry is futile in light of God's sovereignty. What does this mean? Worry can't change God's sovereignty, God's plan. Hence the question, Jesus says, who of you, by being worried, can, can, can add to your life? The deeper issue here is the sovereignty of God. The true, Because the true God is not only a good God, but He's in control. Jesus knows that. A few passages on that, on the sovereignty of God. Psalm 115, 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Whatever He pleases. Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things long past, God says. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like Me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established. I'll accomplish all my good pleasure. And in Lamentations 3, who is there who speaks? And it comes to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? That God is in control here. A a definition of the sovereignty of God up here uh, from the Westminster Confession of Faith. God from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Jesus knows this being a good theologian. And so it is futile to worry. Our worry is not going to adjust the sovereignty of God, is it? No, it won't. I will not. God is sovereign over everything, including our very lives. Psalm 139, 16, David says, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. Talking about, man, before I was even born. And in your book, we're all, uh, were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. I mean, God has already determined our life. It's a done deal. Every second, all of us have a predetermined Expiration date, which means worry cannot leverage God's sovereignty, and anxiety will not adjust God's plan, will it? It won't do it. it won't do a thing. It won't do a thing. Charles Corliss says this: since God has determined the duration of each person's life, lack of food will not result in premature death, and abundance of food will not prolong life. A person's survival depends on divine sovereignty not human anxiety. John Calvin says this, the time of every man's death has been fixed by God. We are safe from all risk until God is pleased to call us away. That's real helpful right there. Worry is futile. So then go ahead and eat your kale salad. Eat your kale salad. All of you, you pretend to like it, but I know you don't. Do your thousands of burpees. Drink your kale milkshakes. But doing so will not change God's predetermined time of your life. Might make conditions better in that time. This doesn't mean we'd be irresponsible, of course. But we can rest. We can be wise and in everything. Instead of being anxious, man, we can trust God. And trust Him. Worry is futile. It accomplishes nothing. The futility principle. I want to encourage us. Think about, man, I want to have a fruitful life for the Lord. My anxiety, it's fruitless, isn't it? It's futile. Sixth. Well, number seventh. Seventh principle to lay our worry to death is the beauty principle. The beauty principle. The idea that God beautifies, makes beautiful His creation, So we can trust that he cares about us. Again, argument from less valuable flowers and stuff to the more valuable you. You. Notice verse 28 with me. Look there, please. Jesus says, and why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil or spin. Stop right there. It's a rhetorical question. Why do you worry about clothing? You shouldn't be. And again, we'll have two sub points under this as well, because it's such a a deep and a rich idea. Our Lord has so much to say to us here. First, we'll see that we can trust God to clothe you with your physical needs. And second, we can trust God to clothe us with our spiritual, moral needs. We can trust God to clothe us with our physical needs. First, let's look at that point. Trust God to close us with our physical means. Now, a couple things that Jesus is not saying under this point by way of clarity. This can be an easy passage to misunderstand this particular verse. First, Jesus is not saying this. Well, you know, the, the flowers do nothing to look good. So, so, you know, you're, you're godly if you give no care to your appearance. He's not saying that. He's not saying stop trying to look nice. Just Just go to the sweatsuit section of Kmart and buy one gray sweatsuit and one brown and just alternate them every day. And that's, that's holiness. You're so godly if you do that. He's not saying that. And if nothing else, looking at the way God decided to make things like flowers and trees and tetons and sunsets, makes that clear that they don't all wear the same Kmart sweatsuit. No, Christ also is not saying Well, if you never care or worry about your clothes, well, you got this down and you don't need to pay attention to this point. He's not saying that. While uh, he is telling us to stop worrying about clothes so much, the greater point that Jesus is making here is less the idea about caring about clothes and more about trusting a powerful, creative God to take care of you, whether it's clothes or, or, or kids or a companion or cash or cars or whatever it might be. Trust God. Third, Jesus isn't saying, well, hey, flowers don't do any work to get stuff. You don't either. You can just sit there like a flower in a field and look pretty and it all fall to you. He's not doing that. We covered that already. Now, some context on this idea here. The first century ancient East audience, they could never have imagined the affluent world in which we live. This, especially as it relates to stuff we put on ourselves and clothes and roofs and jackets and houses and gear. They could not imagine the colossal amount of clothing available to us, nor could they have imagined the obsession and, uh, that we have with clothing and appearance. They would have chuckled about these kind of foolish things. Because for them, it wasn't what they were going to wear, but if they had anything to wear. Anything. Each person in these days would have one, maybe like a two, two cloaks. You just throw a big thing around you. If you look at first century, Mideast fashion, it was pretty bland. Except for maybe the 0.1% of the population. Royalty. Clothing was expensive to buy and, and tedious to make in those days. They didn't have dozens of material options like cotton and Gore-Tex and, and and polyester and nylon and synthetics no they had sheep that's what they had and so to get clothes you had to first get the sheep then you had to shear the sheep then you had to get the wool and then the strands had to be spun into threads and then you put the stuff on the loom and weave it and fabric was then further treated with these fuller mallets and uh, pulled apart and stretched, and then it could be made into a cloak, which is a very plain in design and in color. And all that pretty much by hand. So the thought of, of, you know, styly pants and sweaters and scarves and button up shirts and suits and all these things, I mean, was unthinkable to them. Unthinkable. Even so, Jesus says to the first century audience, you don't need to worry about clothes. God, and He gives many good reasons. Notice, look back at verse 28 with me. Observe, He says. Notice what He says. Observe how the lilies grow. The Greek word translated observe there. It's an an intensified word for learn. It means learn thoroughly. Carefully examine this thing. The idea here is, okay, instead of playing the worry tape in your brain, what if, oh man, what what if, what if, what if, what if? Play another tape. Fix your eyes on just something like a flower. And learn from God. God's creation can help us put our worry to death. He says, observe how the lilies grow. And as Jesus and his audience are sitting there by the shores of the Sea of Galilee, they would look over and see something like this. I have a picture from a, a lily field in Israel that they probably would see. That's a lily field. All these amazing flowers. More specifically, I believe those are anemones. Anemones. He points to them. And he's not. Jesus is not pointing to a top-notch nursery and a greenhouse with, with systems of irrigation and all these elaborate fertilizers. No, he just look at this field right here that God planted. He says, observe how they grow. Look at their beauty. Notice in the text, verse 28, he says, their beauty doesn't require something. Look at verse 28. They don't toil, nor do they spin, None of those things, the Greek word toil there, it means exhaustion, like taking a beating because the hearers, as Jesus hears, are listening to this. When they think clothing, they think exhausting to make to make like a cloak. The flowers don't do that. Notice back to the text. They say, nor do they spin. There's no shearing, no, no looms. And so the question that the text demands is, well, why isn't this necessary to produce a field like this? Answer? Because God beautifies His creation so you can trust Him. And Jesus furthers the point. Look down at verse 29. Look at verse 29. He says, Yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. Solomon was the wealthiest Most extravagant king in Israel's history. History records he lived in extraordinary wealth. Solomon, about 900-ish B.C. And he had the most extravagant clothing they can imagine. So much so that in Jesus' time, there were proverbs about the glory of Solomon and his royal robes, like sayings. But even so, all that effort and money and designed to make Solomon's royal robes, Jesus says they pale in comparison to the way that God clothes just these random fields in Israel. More pictures of these anemones. How do they pale? Look at this. This is a close-up of a purple anemone, very common in Israel. Another one. We'll put it up here. These things are... I mean, you look at these. They're incredible in their design. And their beauty and their glory. Point being, God meticulously beautifies His creation, doesn't He? To take this further with the the knowledge that we have in our day, scientists estimate that there are 400,000 different kinds of flowers on the planet. 400,000? Reports say about 200 new ones are discovered each year. I mean, each year today still. Flowers have been found growing up at 15,000 feet elevation in the Alps. And that's not in a greenhouse, just in rocks, barrenness. Flowers, some are three feet in diameter, some are microscopic, some grow in barren deserts, some grow in water. Point being, God specifically created and designed, programmed the DNA of each of those 400,000 flowers That's a lot to keep track of, but God does it. He keeps track of them. He knows the different kinds. He provides the sunlight, the dirt, the air, the water all around the planet. It is impossible that things of such elaborate design, such competent care could happen by chance. No, this is the active hand of a sovereign God who you can trust, of a great God, of a glorious God. And so Jesus says, God is so good. You can trust him by looking at a little measly flower. And learn something glorious about the supremacy and the greatness of Almighty God. Look at the flowers, he says. And Then look at verse 30. Jesus says this. He just keeps going. Look at verse 30. He says, but if God so closed the grass of the field. And he, he, he assumes God did it. God did it. And though they didn't have microscopes in these days, I wanted to show you a picture, a microscopic picture up here. Uh, that's not a tennis ball. Uh, that is pollen that comes from the, you know, the little uh, pistils or whatever they're called, of the flower. Pardon me if you're a botanist here. I mean, just, the closer you look, there's this incredible design, structure that God made. This is not, you can't, the last thing you can think and look at that is, oh, that just is random. No, that is, the, that is the supremacy of God right there. Supremacy of God. It would, I mean, we have to labor and sweat and take centuries to invent various dyes and synthetic fabrics and complex machines to assemble clothing. Yet God has not even broken a sweat, but spoke these flowers into being in creation. Every single one was clothed in this way far before greenhouses were invented, weren't they? So the illustration of the birds in verse 26 uh, is taken further there about the birds. Jesus said, look, you don't have to worry because God is so competent and sovereign that he sees to it that even birds are, are fed. You're more important than birds. I'll take care of you now here about the flowers. He furthers the idea. The point is not only that God feeds his creation, but but look how beautiful he makes these things. They have an unnecessary beauty. To show the supremacy of God, how competent he is. The beauty is not necessary for just life to go, but it's very helpful for you and I to learn something about how much God loves you and will take care of you. Even something as simple as one of 400,000 different kinds of flowers, it's as if the flowers say to you every day, God is God. Trust God. And the flowers preach to you every day, God is good, trust God. And the flowers cry out to us again like the birds. Man, why do you you human beings worry? If only you had a God like we do, you wouldn't worry, you human beings. God is so good. The flowers preach to us. So whether we look up to the birds of the air or down to the flowers, I mean, the, the glory and the trustworthiness of God is on loud display, isn't it? Isn't it? just doesn't make sense to worry about a couple of things we need, like a roof and bills, if God can make and feed and grow and design 400,000 flowers. Trust God to clothe you with your physical need. But number two, and more importantly, it's still under this flower idea here. Number two, trust God to clothe you with your spiritual, moral needs. Trust God to clothe you with your spiritual Moral needs. The point that we can take from this verse here is more than our closets will have enough T-shirts and pants. Because the visual material lessons are always greater spiritual lessons, aren't they? For God. There's a more important type of clothing and covering that we need than cotton or wool. Far more important. We would be forgetting something crucial here if we left off the greatest clothing and the greatest beauty which God provides for those who trust in him because there is a more important type of clothing. We can have, uh, look, we can have countless closets of cotton and wool and cupboards packed but still be spiritually and morally bankrupt and lost before God and not going to heaven. If we don't have the most important clothing, no. We need something more important than that. The clothing of this. The righteousness of Christ. Every human being needs to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What does this mean? It's really the heart of Christianity. If there's nothing you understand about Christianity in the Bible, please get this. God says that we, all humanity, that we are sinners by nature and by deed, which which means this: that God has set standards for us as humanity, and we failed them. We have failed them in our nature and deed. All of us have failed them. Failed what? And on what grounds? I mean, what do you mean we have failed God? Just a couple of things. What is His standard? What's the what's the bar? What's God's bar? A couple of verses. Uh, Matthew 22, someone asked Jesus, Teacher, what is like the greatest commandment of your law? Like Sum it all up for me, and Jesus says this, you, you need to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the greatest commandment. Or another way to say, like sum all this up, Jesus said in Matthew 5.48, you need to be perfect. How perfect, Jesus? As perfect as God is morally perfect. And so, I mean, it's hard to kind of see how we've failed until you set the bar, and it's like, okay, I'm way below that. Uh, I'm way below that. A brief examination of our lives, perhaps this past year, perhaps the past week. I mean, we all have plenty of evidence that we failed to be morally perfect according to God's standards. We all have sinned, as Romans 3.23 says. Just a reminder here that all have sinned. All, God who sinned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We may have tried hard, but trying hard is still fail. Just like, uh, think of like a high jumper who who goes for the eight foot mark. Right, he sets the bar at eight foot. Man, that high jumper he tries hard, doesn't he? Runs and you know does the flop or whatever, but he comes up at like six ten. He tried hard, but he still failed. We can try hard as all we want, but we still Fail, and so this there's a fascinating metaphor in the Bible that's very important, which God uses uh, to describe the condition of us all, and it's a very unflattering one. Places like Isaiah 64, I'll put it up here really quick. Say it this way: All of us have become like one who is unclean. That means spiritually, morally, all of our righteous deeds, notice, are like a filthy garment, a filthy garment. That's a metaphorical way to express our natural condition. Because again, having failed God's good moral standards, it's it's as if this, think of it this way, it's as if we're 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 in moral and we're clothed in spiritual rags before God. We're we're it's as if we're covered in sin. And so because of that, we all have a great problem that needs some that, that 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 cotton clothing and bills paid cannot solve. Full cupboards cannot solve this one. Again, we are clothed naturally in moral and spiritual rags before God, and until we kind of get this, we're not. We cannot go to heaven. And it also means that in our own doing, we can't. We we, we can't remove these things. We there's a problem. Psalm 130 says it very helpfully. Psalm 130, the psalmist says, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? If, if Lord, as as you take a record, you know all my sins. Man, I, I cannot stand before you. I'm like moral rags before you. We all need forgiveness. We all need our nature changed. We all need our moral rags changed. And we cannot do it. We cannot do it by attempting to increase our moral virtue. We cannot remove our garment of sin by sitting in a church. We cannot attempt uh, to remove our moral rags by trying to be kind or doing things like charity. No, we all have a, a filthy robe on us, as it were, and we must embrace that. We must embrace that. Something has to be done for us. We like to think of ourselves, well, I'm able to, you know, accomplish things. There's one thing in our life that we cannot accomplish, and it is remove our moral rags. We cannot do this. We need this. Zechariah 3 says this. This is a picture to describe this. Uh, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said, see, I've taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. It's a this is a a picture of the moral and a spiritual change that every human being needs. How we become cleansed before holy God. God must forgive us and, as it were, remove, remove the rags of our sin. This is why Jesus came and died on the cross for us. This is why He came. As we're approaching Christmas, the question often comes up, why did Jesus come? Answer, to remove our sin. This is why. When Christ died on the cross, something absolutely incredible happened. For all who would ever repent and trust Christ... All of their sin was punished and was penalized in Christ and is put away at the foot of the cross by simple faith in Jesus Christ. Though Jesus was perfect, He had no stain of sin on Him. He was the only person ever to have that. And he still went to the cross. And he, when He was on the cross, our garments of sin, as it were, were placed on Him And He died for our sin so that we could be cleansed. So that we could have His moral perfection put on us, and our moral imperfection is put on Him. And so therefore, the moment that we sincerely bow the knee to Jesus Christ, and we wholeheartedly trust Him, God, as it were, removes our garment, not by works, by faith. He removes our sin from us, and He covers us in the perfection of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 61 is one place where God describes this. Talking about someone who who has asked God for forgiveness. He says, oh man, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. Why? He has clothed me with garments of salvation. Do you see that there? Here's the most important thing in the Bible. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. You see that it is God who did the wrapping, God who did the clothing, because this believer knows I can't do that. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and a bride adorns herself with jewels. And then another passage that explains this most important truth of all of Christianity is Galatians 3.27. All of you, you clothe yourselves with Christ, meaning by putting faith in Christ. Man, you got those garments away from you, that sin, you are clothed with Christ. This is the most beautiful garment any human being can ever have. Dear friend, you must come to God. And I want to say to you, you must come to God with your stained, filthy rags of your sin and your life. And you come to God And simply by asking God's forgiveness and believing that Jesus died for your sin, God doesn't say, oh, get out of here. No, no, not this God. He says forgiven. He says, "Though you are filthy with your rags of sin. Please give me that garment. Give me your sin. I put it on Christ and I take the garment of the holy righteousness of Jesus Christ and I put it over you and I drape you in Christ because I love you and I clothe you with righteousness so that you are acceptable before me. This is the gospel. God then says, I will give you these shining garments and you are spotless. You are mine. You are a child of God now. Enter into my family by faith, not works. And from then on till death. Though we are not perfect still when we are saved. God the Father, when he looks at us, he doesn't see that old stained rag of sin anymore. No, he sees the Lord Jesus Christ when he looks at you. Why? Because you've gotten good enough? No, because he believed in the right Savior who has clothed you. He sees Christ. We become accepted, not because of what we do, but because we're clothed in Christ. And for that reason, the Bible says this in Romans 8 one, one of the most important verses. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Notice that phrase, in Christ Jesus. When you, it's cold outside now, when you put on a jacket, when you put on a jacket, you're... In that jacket, right? You're in the jacket. When we come to Christ for cleansing, beloved, and you put faith in Him and you say, God, I cannot work my way to heaven. I cannot be good enough. You must take all my sin on the cross. When you do that, it's as if you are in Christ. He wraps you and protects you so that you are accepted before God and you are saved and no more will there be condemnation in Christ. By simple faith. I tell you, if our acceptance with God depended on our daily performance, there would be great condemnation. That verse would say, "There is great condemnation if it depends on your moral performance, but it doesn't. It's because you're clothed in Christ. Never again, an ounce of condemnation. Your acceptance when you put faith in God does not depend on you, but on Christ. He's a very acceptable savior. Therefore, the most glorious clothing, friends, the most glorious clothing is not from Steel and North Face and Bebe and Guess and whatever else. No, the most glorious clothing is not made of cotton and wool, but of the life of Jesus Christ given for you on the cross. This is a wonderful truth that many have written about. I want to show you one in particular. Wesley wrote about this in 1738. He says this. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Notice Wesley understood the reason there is no condemnation is because I'm clothed in righteousness and not in my own works. That is the greatest truth in all the universe, friends. So why worry about clothes and cash when Romans 8:32 says this, he who did not spare his own son, God the Father did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give you all things? Meaning, look, this God gives you the most important clothing you need, the righteousness of Christ. Why worry, I mean, about why worry about Earth's outfits and bills and my goodness, when we're clothed in heaven's righteousness. The most important beauty you must have, friend, please hear this. Is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Are you clothed in it? Have you bowed the knee to him in faith? Not do you know about him? Not have you heard about him? Not have you been to a lot of Sunday school? Have you been clothed in Christ? Have you come to faith in Christ? Have you embraced Christ? Have you allowed and and invited Christ to wrap you and clothe you? Martin Luther, the great 16th century reformer, said this. He said to be clothed with Christ, according to the gospel, is not to be clothed with the law or my works or my morality. In other words, no, but with the forgiveness of sin, righteousness, peace, consolation, joy of the spirit, salvation, life and Christ himself. Dear friend, there are two types of people in the world. There are two types of people in the world. Those who are clothed in Christ by faith and on their way to heaven. And those who are clothed in their own works and trusting in themselves and are not on their way to heaven. Which one are you? Which are you? When you stand before God one day and you will... Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed man to die once and it comes judgment. Who will God see wrapped around you? Will it be the righteousness of Christ or my trying heart that is vastly short, vastly insufficient? Oh, friend, please know you have stains if you don't know Christ today. If you haven't haven't just bowed as it were at the cross and said, please, Lord, save me. You have stains, but God loves you. And he says, allow my son just to wrap you up in cover, to cover your moral filth with Christ's beauty, His wealth of righteousness. Come to Christ, friend. Come to faith in Christ. Believe on Christ. Call on God today before it's too late. Believe in Him. Trust in Him. Ask Him to save you. Cherish what God offers you day after day. Do not trample the patience of God with you, friend. Don't abuse that. Today is the day, dear friend. Be sure you enter eternity with the right clothing. You can trust God for it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You so much for for Christ, for His death for us. Oh, Lord. Lord, we know that You are so trustworthy for things like cotton and cupboards and bills. You are so capable. We thank You for that. Far more importantly, though, we know You are capable to clothe us in Christ so that we can be forgiven and go to heaven. Oh, Lord, let us be sure that all of us have believed on You and cause us all this week to go out from here joyfully trusting in God. Joyfully thank you, thanking you for the righteousness of Christ, that all people around us might ask, man, give me that. Give me that God. Give me that Christ. Give me that clothing. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.